0: Hello, folks. How's it going? I'm Sam from the Finance Club, and our guest today is Professor Daniel Egger. Daniel Egger went to Yale for undergrad and then again to Yale for law school. Since then, he's been a tech entrepreneur, a CEO, and now he's a managing director at a venture capital firm. In addition, of course, to being a professor of data science and computational finance at Duke, Vince, Keith, and I really enjoyed talking to him. He had some great insights on data privacy and information accuracy, issues that are really important to him and to all of us right now. We had a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoy it. Please welcome Professor Daniel Agar.
1: Cash
0: is king. Cash is king. Alright. Professor Nagart, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Uh, we also have Vince in the studio today. Alright. Uh, thanks for having me, Sam. <laughs> So, Professor, do you want to take us through um, how you got involved with data and computers coming out of law school? Sure. How how did that work exactly?
1: Sure. So, I got interested in data and computers while I was a law student. And it came about because I was a research assistant for a professor. And I was researching uh, the footnotes, which means all the relevant case law for different arguments that he was making in an article for... um, A law journal. And the research tools at that time were very primitive, so you could type in a phrase or a series of words and you could get a list of all the documents that contained those words. But there was no real ordering of those documents by relevance to your particular argument. There was no real way to figure out which ones were of legal importance or which ones were authoritative. And it occurred to me that because of the way legal cases cite one another, you have certain cases that are cited a whole lot, and those tend to be more important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they're cited for having been wrong, so you can't just assume always that if they're frequently mentioned, they're right. But in general, um, and also there are groups of cases that uh, are cited together, and they tend to be on the same topic. So if you look at the network of citations or hyperlinks among legal documents, you can learn a lot about their content, even if you don't read them. So you can treat the document as a kind of black box and just look at the network around it. Mm
0: -hmm. In the sense that it would give context?
1: In the sense that it would say, maybe if there's a subject area where these 10 documents define the field of the most important documents about it. And this document would be the single most important in the group. So if you did a word search and identified a whole lot of documents, but you saw that there was a cluster of documents that contained that word, you could prioritize those. So you could use network analysis or graph theory to prioritize a search and retrieval that was originally based on text.
0: Isn't that like page rank? Yes,
1: that is page rank. And in fact, um, you can derive the PageRank formula from my original 1993 patent. It's a special case of the network analysis that's laid out in my patent. So, uh, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that was um, exciting enough, that insight was exciting enough that I went around and started asking people, so have other people tried this? And I talked with a computer science professor, Ken Yip, who was very knowledgeable about AI at that time. And uh, I explained what I wanted to do, and I asked him if anyone had researched that area and wh- who knew about it. And he said, uh, there's actually nothing like that. It's like, well, are you sure? He's like, yeah, I read all the literature. I'm sure. I think you could start a company that did that.
0: Which year was this? Just so this was in my second school? year
1: of law school. So I was right in the middle of law school. I was trying to get on the law review. I was very involved in various clubs. I was taking a whole lot of courses. Plus, um, uh, yeah, plus I was working for this professor. So I was very, very, very busy. But nevertheless, I carved out a little time. And I found a student who was willing, a computer science student who was willing to work with me on a prototype. And we did some research projects. And we, at that time, we had to manually code which documents referred to which other documents. That all had to be done by hand. There were no parsing tools and the documents themselves were um, often and only available in paper form. So it was a very, very slow, arduous process. We created a small test data set and we created a demo and um, I began taking it around and showing it to people and um, I got enough favorable response Uh, And I also went and went to something called the Artificial Intelligence and Law Conference in 1993, which was like a world conference for AI as applied to legal documents. And there was absolutely nothing like what I had there at the conference. And I read all the back journal art, all the proceedings of the journal, et cetera, et cetera. There was nothing like it. So I decided to start a company. And that's how I got started, Um, but I spent seven months sitting in a room with no employees and no revenues and no product, just working the phone and trying to raise money as a person who had never started a company before, had never seen a business plan before and um, uh, had to somehow persuade people that this very abstract idea would result in really significant business value, right? So that was pretty challenging. And I did over 40 venture presentations before I found someone who was willing to invest in that. Uh, but I was stubborn and I was just determined that I was gonna make it
0: happen. That sounds an awful lot like how Elon Musk uh, worked with Zipto back in the day. I mean, just sitting out of his office, making those calls, waiting for someone to get back. Yeah, there, every
1: entrepreneur at one time is just some totally unknown guy. And investors are used to having 90 plus out of 100 people who call them have ideas that either aren't very good or maybe are good, but they can't execute on them. And um, and so you have to somehow overcome that fog and that noise and get noticed and get believed and be persuasive and none of which um, is obvious how to do. You know. Now there are books. I found one <laughs> book at that time. It was called Engineering Your Startup and it was written for engineers. It was almost like an engineering management kind of text for entrepreneurship. It was very unusual at that time. There were not the hundreds of books on the huge bookshelf at that time, in the early 90s. No
0: zero to one back then. No zero to
1: one, no. <laughs> no lean startup, none of that. Um, but I found that book very, very helpful, and it kind of explained how to write a business plan, and why you needed a business plan, and who you're gonna show your business plan to, and um, and, uh, yeah, and, and um, I'll fast forward about 10 years, and eventually, um, the intellectual property, the patents from that company got licensed to Google and Microsoft and AOL and others. Um, and, and, uh, and so it was a big... Uh, financial success for its backers and so on, but it took a long time. It took a long time and I did other things in the meantime. Uh, it took a long time before people really recognized how, uh, necessary this intellectual property was to yes. internet search.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in the meantime, I was involved in helping other people with their startups. Um, I loved the way in which computers were getting less and less expensive. It was very exciting. So every year computers would drop dramatically in price. Processing power got less and less and less expensive. And so things that in the textbooks they would say, theoretically this would be possible, but it's too computationally expensive and you can't do it. Those things kept becoming possible. And I realized I could make a whole career out of doing things that the previous year had been too computationally expensive and people who had just who'd been to school had sort of had drilled into them, mm-hmm. that won't work because it takes too much processing power. And that if I was just willing to kind of ride the wave, there would be new possibilities and new things that became possible
0: every year. And wasn't that dramatic though, the, the difference in price and the, the, the rate at which things were going? Was it that dramatic for that to be a uh, year to year arbitrage of sorts?
1: Well, I've been doing this now since 1991 And it's been true every year since then. So at some point, this trend will end, but it actually shows no signs of ending. And a great example of that is how the AI techniques that everyone is raving about now, multi-layered neural networks, deep learning, were actually kind of boring when I read about them in in the early 90s because they had been around already and they had been kind of shown not to work. And by the mid to late 90s, they have been completely rejected as not successful. And the only thing that changed, the math is the same, the only thing that changed is computers became a 1,000 times less expensive, processing power became, became 10,000 times as great, and you could start to build networks that had a whole lot more links and nodes and just were a whole lot more network. And in hindsight, a network that has... Um, about as much processing power as the brain of a roundworm maybe shouldn't have been expected to be able to play Go. But, <laughs> uh, but, but we now have networks that still are not as large as the human brain but are within a couple orders of magnitude, they're, they're vastly, vastly closer. I mean, there are now neural networks that have brains that are equivalent to those of some small mammals. Mm-hmm. So we're approaching a kind of point of, of where it shouldn't be any surprising any longer that these neural networks actually can uh, act in ways that seem pretty intelligent.
0: So with uh, all of this AI and all of these neural networks and all of this, um, the one thing that we need the most uh, to drive any of this is data. Yes. So um, do you have any thoughts on um, a lot of things that have been happening that are centered on um, the, the issues that are um, around data? So. Uh, is there anything that you have to say about that? Well, referring uh, specifically to the Cambridge um, which would have been
1: Yes. So I was hoping you would ask me about that. <laughs> so uh, when I started a long time ago, you had to take pieces of paper and you had to turn them into electronic form in order to do a computer experiment. So you people would take a small number of documents and they would code them. You
0: punch words them.
1: Well, this was, I'd started after the punch card era, but it was still the case that a business's information was not in digital form, it was all on paper. So in order to do any sort of experiment, you had to digitize yourself, which is very, very expensive. And sometime around the late 90s, it started to be the case that most businesses were creating their data in digital form to begin with. And then starting in the early 2000s it started to be the case that most individual people had a lot of data about themselves that was in digital form to begin with. And people started to populate their Facebook pages and they started to have apps on their phones that tracked everywhere they went. And all of this digital data started to um, make it possible to ask much more advanced questions, and to train algorithms to be much more effective. Because a big weakness of the neural network technology of the '90s is, was both that the networks were too small, but also that the training sets were too small. Right. And you really want a training set of a hundred thousand instances to train something complicated, so that it can tell whether a picture has a cat in it or not. No, it's Never mind a harder problem than that, right? So uh, what happened is these huge digital data sets became almost free to use. And if you're a corporation, you have almost unlimited amounts of data about your customers and and so you you can do very advanced things. So somewhere along the way, somewhere between the late 90s and now, it became possible to know too much about people. It started that we were happy if we had a little bit of an insight. Like, hey, maybe if we offered them $20 off on their next shipping, they would buy with from us again, and then we'll have a recurring revenue customer. You know, it's like, wow, that's great. That's why we hire McKinsey and pay the millions of dollars. Come up with these brilliant insights. <laughs> you know, it was literally on that level, okay? Mid 90s, late 90s, right? And now it's like, hmm. We know that that person is neurotic. We know that that person <laughs> is probably going to get divorced. Has a ninety percent of chance of a moving in the next year. Um, has a propensity to substance abuse, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We know way too much about people, um, so that the the task of analyzing data to create insights about human behavior has gone from being a nice value added on the edge of business to being a rather frightening power at the very center of business. And we who do data science spent years just explaining what it was we were doing, (laughs) often to people who did not care. Now all of a sudden we have the power to do bad things. We have too much power, and therefore we need to be regulated. There need to be rules, and the current rules are really obsolete. The judge that I clerked for used to say, um, well, so the Microsoft antitrust trial was going on in the courtroom where I worked, in the the same court building. So I used to go and listen and stuff, and, um, and and the judge I clerked for was quite liberal, and so I thought that he would be sympathetic to the idea of breaking up Microsoft. So one day, it wasn't his case, so one day I asked him, so what do you think about that? And he said, well, you know, you can't put shoes on a galloping horse. Like, okay, (laughs) what exactly do you mean by that? I don't remember reading that in my law books, but okay. What he he meant was um, the law moves slowly and it requires time to figure out how to create legal rules that don't have unintended consequences. And so the way that Microsoft had come from nowhere to have this monopolistic position in operating systems, it had happened so rapidly that antitrust law had not evolved to be able to really fit the situation. And the truth was that it was a very blunt instrument to try and deal with Microsoft. And his view was that judges, and people who write laws of course as well, need to be humble and cautious about imposing rules on new things, because you don't necessarily know what unintended consequences your rules will have. And so you should proceed with a lot of caution. I thought that was really interesting. i thought about that many, many times. And what I conclude from the Facebook Cambridge Analytica fiasco is that we went from it being too early to have rules, where the rules would have been stifling, and the rules would have been aggressively anti-business and anti-innovation. Hindering innovation. Hindering innovation. We went from where the rules would have been too early to where the rules are now too late in a very short period of time, you know, less than 10 years, very, very short period of time. Um, And that happened so rapidly that um, now it's hard to remember a time when Facebook was just a tiny little company struggling to establish itself and people investing in Facebook were considered a little bit reckless because how is Facebook <laughs> ever... When Facebook went public, there was a whole s- school of thought that said they're never going to be able to run enough advertising on that platform to pay the money that's already been invested in the company. Stay away from that stock. And you can go and you can read analyst reports at the time saying this is not a stock you want to invest in.
0: And what year was this when they went public? 2007? 6? When they went public? Yes. I think it was 2010, closer to 2010. Yeah. Like right. So, as we said, Right.
1: So when you look back and you say, well, they did these rather reckless things in 2011, 12, 13, 14, the verdict was still out on whether they were even going to su- survive and succeed as a business. They clearly were something a millions and tens and hundreds of millions of people like to use, but whether they were going to generate the revenue they needed was not at all obvious. So it's easy to pose that link back and say, why didn't we have more rules? But the reality was that it's only become obvious in hindsight. In
0: hindsight, is really
1: yeah. I'm just saying it was 2012, so that's 12. like six years. Yeah. Right. That's right. So when. Um,
0: <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> <interesting. laughs>
1: yeah. So. So the Cambridge Analytica story is, for those who don't know the details, is that Facebook had a an API that allowed companies or individuals who wrote applications that ran on Facebook to ask for permission to access people's contacts and other data allegedly in order to make the app run better and allow it for example oh you can invite your friends to play this game with me however it also allowed the app to pull the data, including the friends lists of all of your friends. And they never explicitly gave permission for that. Facebook claims that somewhere deep in its permissions was some little box that people somehow were supposed to know meant that. But honestly, no one, no actual human knew that they were granting that permission. So that's just a notional idea of permission. That's just a notional consent, not a real consent. So what happened was by getting a few hundred thousand people to play this game and they actually paid people to play or do the app, they were able to collect different numbers, 37, 50 million full profiles off of Facebook. I noticed today in the Guardian, there was an article, uh, a, a former Cam- a Cambridge Analytica employee is now saying, oh, Cambridge Analytica wrote its own apps, and we had other apps that pulled data. And, um, of course, it was far more than 50 million, far more than 87 million. It was all of it. Let's just be realistic. It was all of it. They have all of it.
0: All of it as in 2.2 billion.
1: No, all of well, all of it as in all 300 million in the U.S. Okay? They have all of it. Whether they have the entire world, I don't know, but they have all of it. And, and... Facebook also allowed a lookup function. So if you put in a phone number or an email address, it would take you to, in, in the search bar of Facebook, it would take you to that person's page. So that allowed you to do a, what's called a reverse lookup where you connect someone's phone number or email address to their actual name and their actual information about them. Which in the past, a way to anonymize data was to strip out the name, the email address, the number, right? Facebook allowed people to do that in an automated fashion. And so they themselves have acknowledged that all two billion Facebook accounts have been scraped in that way. So, and I did a little study last week because I got curious about, so what are the other really big databases that know an awful lot about us? Well, there's, well, if you go through and enter every possible Gmail address, uh, just using every permutation, you're going to get every Facebook profile, right? So you can pull every Facebook profile that way. But um, the, the if you look at the really big important ones in the United States, there are the uh, credit rating agencies. They know what jobs you've had, whether you've been late on your bills, what credit cards you have. They probably know what car you drive and what car you've driven in the past because you probably took a loan to get them. So you needed a credit score to get that car loan. And interestingly, the Trump campaign found that owning an American car was one of the best indicators. Um, So they used that data. They used that credit scoring data. Something that people don't totally grasp about Facebook is they don't just have the data that they collect about you. They buy credit scoring data. They buy data, broker data from Axiom. Yes, they buy other data about you. So they know not just what you put on Facebook, but they know how much money you make, what credit
0: cards you have,
1: what your credit score is, how uh, rich you are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Based on what the linking you talked about, they're able to link that to your profile then. Right, correct, because...
1: Right. Yeah, also the phone number allows you to look up someone's physical location, which allows you to identify with probabilistic accuracy, but 80% accuracy, their street address which you can then link to public records of properties to find out if they're a homeowner, how much they paid for their home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, the power of linking these data sets. But here was the point I was gonna make. The credit scoring data, like Experian, the data, the data broker data, like Axiom, the uh, US government data on 22 million people who um, have filled out a full, what's called SF-86 form, if you, if you have any sort of security clearance with the United States, you work in the State Department, any anywhere that's even semi, um, potentially you might need to be shown something that's secret, then you need uh, to fill out an SF-86 form. On this form, you have to give every job you've had, every foreign contact you've had, any issues you've had with anything that might disqualify you, like criminal records, substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was all stolen, so 22 million SF86 records were stolen. Credit scoring data was stolen. Um, data, uh, in 2010, there were a, was a stolen database of 191 million voter records in the U.S., with basically all voters in the U.S. with their street address and party affiliation and so on. So if you think about what's already leaked or been stolen, it's possible to assemble a complete comprehensive view Of every aspect of our lives, going back
0: ten years, but that isn't the hypothetical, right? Hmm? Someone with access to all of this would, in theory, have a very clear picture of what you are as a person. And if
1: you choose to believe that no one has done so, you are free to believe that. But I think that would be very naive, Uh, because there has also been some degree of organization and consistency to these break-ins and thefts. People have targeted the highest value uh, sources of data, and they've they've figured out how to link them together. So, where that puts us is that Cambridge Analytica just drew people's attention to a problem that wasn't caused by Facebook, that can't be fixed by Facebook, that really would exist if there were no Facebook, (laughs) which is that it is very easy now to de-anonymize data about us. So, if we have bought medicines and we have a health insurance company, oh, that data is protected by HIPAA. Yes and no. It can be sold in anonymized form to people who want to market, and it can be de-anonymized using something called a probabilistic join, which if you go on the ORC website, they have extensive seminars on how to do de-anonymization through probabilistic joins. This is a perfectly, apparently, legitimate area of data science nowadays. (laughs) Um, So this is the world that we live in. We live in a world where all of these data are linked together. And everything about us is known. And we have no privacy left. So then the question is, okay, what do we do about it? Because the people who are good at working with these data, the data scientists, can uh, very easily go to work for people who just happen to have copies of all these data. And if they don't ask too many questions about where the data came from, um, they will have godlike like powers to identify people for every possible purpose, legitimate or not.
0: That is uh, true, but you talked about a, a phase where we went from offering people an additional 20% discount to identifying whether or not this person is neurotic. Where would you say we crossed the line? And what, according to you, is the line?
1: Well. Right now the legal lines are unclear. It appears that most of what has been done is not illegal, meaning under U.S. law it's not illegal. In the European Union starting in May 2018, they have a new privacy regime that they've been working on for several years. And under their new privacy rules, much of these behaviors will be illegal. However, it's very difficult to um, go back, and, and there's no time machine to go back and recover what's already been lost. So even though legitimate legal operations can't do this, there's very easy workarounds for those who are willing to cheat. Okay. And in the U.S., I think pretty much everything I've mentioned is essentially not either not illegal or it's not clear who would enforce any rule against it it's in a gray area so we obviously need stricter rules okay. and I have some thoughts about what those rules might be um, but um, I have some thoughts about what those rules might be but we're gonna have to see as a society where people come out I jump in with a question do you think right now like the US Congress
0: is prepared and knowledgeable enough to start regulating this industry like obviously there's a clear need to but
1: I hear the snickers of laughter in the studio.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's only because uh, there were a lot of videos going out that uh, showed us specific instances where the people asking questions. Like, like, how do you make money,
1: Facebook? Questions like that. Yes, or like, it's a series of tubes, this internet thing. And email email. on WhatsApp. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But even beyond that. Yes,
1: so, yeah, yeah. the answer is that all these senators and congressmen have people working for them who are in their 20s. <laughs> they all have people who just graduated from top law schools many of whom have undergraduate technical degrees. Mm-hmm. So they are capable of getting the information that they would need to regulate this. Okay. They, they don't understand it well enough yet to be worried enough to care. They're just starting to realize Oh, this this is a monster. We've created a Frankenstein's monster. We created this, and we ignore it at our peril. They're just—it's just dawning on them, you know. Give them another two or three years, and they will—they'll be scared by well, what they allowed to happen.
0: I had a question as well. Um, so you mentioned this would have happened even without Facebook. So do you think Facebook is just a scapegoat for? other companies as well, other tech? Because even Twitter, even Google, I mean, Google search, uh, you know, they have that search feed on your phone now. Twitter basically does the same thing. Are they just playing the game worse than Facebook? And is Facebook like being made to pay? Or do you think Facebook should be held accountable? Well, I think that Facebook has
1: been the most successful at intimating its way into our personal lives. So the average person in the U.S. spends 50-plus minutes per day on Facebook. And they're interacting with their friends, with their relatives, with their children. They they feel like this should be some kind of safe garden, like some kind of playground. And so to find out that it's actually a battle zone where hostile governments are trying to poison their minds is disturbing, to put it mildly. You don't go on Google and expect them and it be exactly your friend. They're more like, oh, they're going to point me to things and I'm going to have to use my own judgment which things to go look at. You know what I mean? So there, I think people approach it a little more, uh, in a little more detached or rational way so it doesn't disturb them as much. The power that Google has in prioritizing what you see is just as dangerous as Facebook's power. Um, and and there have been recently, there was a research study that if you, Uh, on YouTube, which of course is owned by Google, um, if you begin to click on links that they provide, within two or three sets of links, you'll be brought to the most extreme kind of conspiracy theories on any topic. And you can quickly go from, hey, I want to know about moon landings, to having an entire page of videos saying that the moon landings never happened. Try this for yourself. And the reason for this is because YouTube is optimized for time spent looking at videos, yes. not how much you learned and how quickly you got the answer and moved on, right? So um, those type of man bites dog kinds of stories tend to be stickier, and people tend to be pulled into them, and suggestible people tend to spend hours you know, going down the rabbit hole. So um, YouTube has become, through its algorithms, um, perhaps unintentionally, very very easy to game and very destructive potentially. So, um, and the Google feature of breaking news is also quite easy to game. So there have been a number of studies of uh, again fake news being in the top two or three items in a Google search within hours of a big event happening. So. Um, Yes, they are potentially just as bad. And Twitter in a way is even worse because they allow bots, they allow false... Facebook has a huge problem with fake profiles, but Twitter almost encourages them because their APIs allow you to set up bot-like personas for corporations or individuals in unlimited numbers. Which can then respond automatically to other people's tweets and other people's comments, and just fill the entire ecosystem with pernicious noise. So, um, Facebook is just—it's just happened to be the one that was easiest to understand. As uh, people felt that their trust had been breached, uh, but when they take a cold hard look at all these others, they—they—they they, they should understand that it's a. Um, While there are variants on the theme, you know they are really um, all—they're all involved in algorithmically holding our attention in a way that is potentially dangerous.
0: Just to come back to Twitter, when you talked about the bots that um, their API allows to have, um, there was this really good article on uh, Bloomberg. Um, It was called "How to Hack an Election." It was. uh, he talked about this guy called Andres Sepulveda, who has uh, he claims and he tells his story in this article. He claims that he's rigged elections throughout Latin America, Colombia, Mexico, um, Venezuela, and that's his thing. Mm-hmm. He's hired by governments, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and his primary mm-hmm. uh, weapon is Twitter bots. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one one of the reasons why um, uh, bots are so powerful is something called social proof which is a psychological theory, which there's a lot of evidence for, which says that people have a very strong tendency to believe what those around them believe, to want to bring their own thinking into accord with the overwhelming majority of people around them. And people have done experiments where they've had two lines, and one is obviously shorter than the other, and they'll have a room full of people saying, oh, those lines are the same length, and an innocent person comes into that, And pretty soon they're like, okay, I guess they're the same length. Because they're up against the crowd. And so what Social Proof does on Twitter is it creates the illusion of mass support for various uh, ideas, ideologies, candidates, products. Hashtags. And people think, oh, if everyone else believes Pizzagate, I guess it's true. (laughs) Huh? Yeah. So uh, this is human nature. So it exploits an aspect of human nature. Our social, you know, our desire to form that we are political animals. We desire to live in a community. Mm -hmm. So it exploits our desire to be in a community, essentially. Um, And then the use of trolls is very powerful because by viciously attacking and insulting people who dissent, it drives them out and silences them. Because what person wants to be subject to vicious ad hominem attack when they suggest that people give up? And so a lot of the effectiveness of troll operations is just driving out alternative points of view. So you have everyone saying, yes, 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 Pizzagate. And then one hapless person says, well, you know, that's not true, right? And then everyone piles on. But this everyone is actually no one real. It's just people who are paid to crush the dissenters, So yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's dangerous. I think that's obvious to everyone.
0: <laughs> I want to come back to GDPR. There's a lot of uh, opposition uh, in Silicon Valley. They believe that uh, the European Union uh, as a government, as an con- organization, as a collection of countries, the biggest tech company they've come up with is Spotify. And for them to be making all of these rules about uh, regulating tech is um, almost unfair to an extent. and Because these are the rules that uh, will be probably used as a template uh, in American uh, mm. courts. Well, it would be another money. way of thinking about it, which is, hey, we don't
1: create these companies anyway, so Think we might exact. as well protect ourselves from them. Right? Mm. The, you know, you don't go to France because it's a hotbed of innovation. I'm sorry. They, have, they actually, Macron actually is super in favor of innovation. And they have wonderful, you know, incubators and all kinds of wonderful things there. But their cultural center of gravity is we, well, here's how I think about it. People who are dissatisfied with the status quo left. They went to the United States, they went to Canada, they went to Australia. They left. People who liked things the way they are stayed in Europe. And culturally we have this big divide. Also, they remember fascism and they remember communism. And the United States, thank God, never was under either fascism or communism. And so we have a somewhat sunny view of human nature and an optimistic take on how information can be used so they have a very vivid memory and plenty of people are still alive who remember uh how government records were used to round people up and membership in organizations for 20 30 years earlier were used to put people in the gulag and or execute them so they're aware of the power of data to be used for evil so i think they are more realistic about human nature in europe i think they are And I think they make a choice in favor of preserving what they have at risk of achieving less change than we do. Culturally, we are happy to throw away... There's a famous line in uh, Democracy in America about a... He says, people in America, they'll build a house and they'll sell it before the roof is on. And they move on somewhere. Okay? That's... You know, that was written more than 100 years ago. That's exactly what America's like. People are like on the move right so culturally this is why we've had no rules in this area because people are excited by change it's like oh cool you mean I can put my data out there in the cloud (laughs) I can find my grandma's wedding picture yeah what do I care if they exploit me and turn me into a slave it's cool
0: (laughs) Yeah, the, again, the Silicon Valley argument uh, can be condensed into one line, that is, uh, those who cannot innovate, regulate. And I think that sort of is what you're saying. But you also give those additional um, reasons for what they're doing. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's very patronizing to think that people in Europe are less intelligent than we are in the United States, and that they don't understand the trade-offs they're making. They're choosing to protect what they have, rather than risk it all on an unknown future. Whereas we are just the opposite. We're happy to risk everything that we have for an unknown future. And it will, and we could because we believe it will turn out all right. And okay. they do, and they are not optimists in Europe about human nature. So that's the f- a fundamental cultural political difference, right? I mean it wasn't Before Europe had its privacy law, they still weren't creating these companies. Hmm. So it's not because of their laws, it's because of their culture.
0: It's it's just generally um, not optimistic in the sense that they would probably prefer to have what they have instead of uh, seeking that uh, potential positive skew in uh, any kind of investment.
1: I wouldn't say that's not optimistic. I'd say that they don't, romanticize change. Mm-hmm. See, but now I'm sounding like somebody middle-aged, aren't I? <laughs> like, I did my startup, so, ha! <laughs> I've got my summer house. But <laughs> <laughs> do I care if they regulate you to death? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I love, I love, I much prefer, I much prefer the American style. So I should just be clear on that. I much prefer it because I'm an American. That's what I know. That's what I've grown up with. I appreciate it. I love California. I love Silicon Valley. And I love our freedom. And this is not the first time this has happened. You know, We threw up railroads all over the country. And they started burning down people's crops. And people were being killed at railroad crossings in enormous numbers. And private railroads were building shoddy bridges. And there was endless, endless derailments. And then gradually, we started having rules. And we had the Interstate Commerce Commission. And we had tort law, and we had all these things that were developed. And I remember in law school like learning about like a lot of law needed to be built up to deal with the fact that railroads were creating all of these new hazards, you know. So, then the same thing with electricity. You had all these private electric companies and people were getting electrocuted all over the place. And eventually they formed utilities. They nationalized or regulated them and they created rules, you know. So, we've been through this cycle of innovation followed by huge improvements mixed with disaster followed by reaction and regulation over and over and over again in our history. But that's our style, is to let it all happen and then look around in shock and say, oh my goodness, this, had s- this is so great. But, you know, like it's similar with the automobile industry. It was like cars were awesome, everyone was excited about automobiles, but then gradually in the 1950s, with the emergence of, or early 60s, the emergence of Ralph Nader and unsafe at any speed, we started to realize, well actually, it's not right to blame passengers for being killed when there are no seat belts, you know, and cars have you no know, bumpers and they are, people are being crushed and we there's no roll bars and people, car rolls over and they're killed. We could require cars to have certain minimum standards of construction, mm-hmm. which the auto industry fought tooth and nail and they said it would destroy, and these are <laughs> cases I remember because I studied them. A lot, would destroy innovation, destroy it. Roll bar seat belts, they, they, you would have thought that, that they were just bringing Stalin in to run America. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I remember that very well from studying it. I was a little, but you know, I wasn't yet around when that whole debate happened. But, uh, you know, where we ended up was cars are still, can still be very profitable for companies that build good ones that people want. And they're incredibly much safer. So there was a kind of battle lines were drawn and eventually a compromise was reached. So same thing will happen. We'll still have an internet and we'll still have freedoms to do things on the internet, um, but we'll have some safeguards against the dangerous forms of abuse that have emerged in the last few years.
0: I just realized that we did not touch upon uh, fake news and just information accuracy in general yeah so, so that is one of the key problems yes and i would say the uh, reasons for that would be similar to what we've discussed yes yeah, so
1: so i was reading let me tell you a story in 1987 i was working as a journalist and i had just been studying in germany so my german was pretty good and a reporter came to me and he had a story that was it had been published in an East German newspaper, which said that the AIDS virus had been developed by United States Biological Weapons Facility in Fort Detrick, Maryland. <laughs> and he was asking me to, to, to help him evaluate whether this might be true or not. And I explained to him, obviously, I didn't know it wasn't true, but I explained to him that this particular journal was published by the Communist Party of East Germany and was extremely unreliable on lots of other things. And I said, they've said this, which wasn't true, and that was, wasn't true. This, So in context, you might be very skeptical of the source. Just this week, I read an article, which I never found at the time. Uh, it was a report in 1987 put out by the State Department on the way in which the lie that the US created AIDS was promulgated. It started with an anonymous letter to the editor in a newspaper in India, that newspaper being the organ of the Communist Party of a region in India. So it was an inside job, essentially. And then communist newspapers all over the world picked up the story and reported it not as a letter to the editor, but as a news story that had been in this, as if it were a news story that had been in this newspaper in India, without pointing out that this newspaper was not organ of the Communist Party at this And then, left-wing, but non-communist journals in places that tended to have, be suspicious of capitalism in the West America, like Italy, at that time, had a very strong Communist Party, or France. They started to run stories that were maybe a little more skeptical, but said, is this, could this be true, is this, whatever. And um, pretty soon, there were hundreds of stories all over the world. The thing spread virally. And sooner or later, you know, it landed on my desk. Like, is this true? Um, what was fascinating reading this article, which I just read this week, is that it's exactly the same as fake news now same mechanism, same viral distribution, same planting at one place, getting other places to pick it up. As it gradually moves from totally discreditable to borderline credible into almost mainstream sources. And then politicians and people, opportunists of various kinds, pick it up because it's rhetorically useful to them. They amplify it. And uh, naive people start repeating it. And pretty soon there's social proof because you have thousands of people saying it, you know. And I was working at a a publication that had a lot of left-wing people who might have believed some negative things about the United States. And so it was almost believable, you know, almost. I didn't believe it but I could see how the guy asking me I could understand how he wasn't sure it was false even though to me it seemed obviously false right it was because they created enough of a cloud around where did this idea where how did this where did this come from right so um, if you want to understand fake news you know you could just read this article from 1987 I mean it's nothing <laughs> has changed the masters of fake news the, the geniuses of fake news have always been the Russians they are extremely good at confusing truth and falsehood and making it all seem relative and arguing that reality and what is true and real and what values are is just a matter of opinion and i thought that it was a a, a characteristic of marxism leninism you know i thought it was dialectical thinking well your values are just bourgeois illusions you know turns out it's not it's russian <laughs> You know, and if you actually go back and look, they use similar methods in Tsarist times. So it actually is very Russian, you know? So what I thought was communism with its nihilistic attitude to reality actually turns out it's Russian nihilism, which is very dangerous. My children think that I'm somehow anti-Russian. That is not true. (laughs) I I do think the Russian, current Russian government Serves its people very poorly, and it's essentially a gangster state. That's my view of the government. But Russian people are not really at fault because they have zero influence or control over their government because it's not a democracy. Mm-hmm.
0: Their elections themselves are questionable. It's
1: a mm-hmm. sham. Yeah, it's a sham. So they didn't, it's an improvement that they got rid of the revolutionary communism that was threatening the whole world. Um, but it wasn't as big as an improvement as we had hoped.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially with the oligarchs and like 13 people running essentially every sector of the uh, yeah. of business in the country. Yeah.
1: If you just... if you if you hear something really deeply offensive on Fox News, like Mark Rich, who was a young man who was killed in a in a botched robbery in the, in, in Washington D.C. He was murdered by a hit squad sent by Hillary Clinton because he was the real source of the DNC email leaks. You hear something like that, which Mark Rich's family is suing Fox News because it's so deeply offensive to be saying this. Um, If you see something really deeply offensive, you can be pretty sure that it was created in Russia. And the Mark Rich story can be traced directly back to similar to the AIDS and Fort Detrick story, to a shady website that publishes pro-Soviet and pro-Russia materials that has dubious and mysterious ownership and uh, zero credibility except as a source where other where other actors can then pick it up and claim that they didn't make it up themselves. So. Uh
0: With the level of data science that uh, you understand, um, would you say it is within the realms of possibility to um, gauge, um, to to sort of classify news or events as fake or not fake, or accurate or inaccurate? Do we have the wherewithal to achieve something like that? Well, you
1: know, people have forgotten this, but in the summer of 2016, um, there was a human team at Facebook that was supposed to be judging whether news was fake or not and there was an outcry in the right-wing press that that human element was biased had a left-wing bias and so they decided to get rid of it and attempted algorithmic you know Mm ai-based sift well we all know how well that worked it is not it is not yet possible for ai to tell the difference between a um a true story and a false one um, based on the contents of the story alone can you rank sources by their credibility you say that something that is in the new york times has probably been fact checked and something that's on a uh, that's published in a communist newspaper in a small region in india might not be fact checked yes you can t- you can contrast them But this is not a problem that AI yet is able to solve. This is still something that you have to have human beings looking at it and dealing with it. We're not there yet.
0: There was uh, an article in uh, Vox, I think, um, about how fake news is actually a monopoly problem as opposed to um, um, a bad actor problem. In the sense that the explanation that uh, Lady gave was that it's because there are only two major algorithms that these fake news uh, um, um, people want to spread fake news. They only have to hack two algorithms, um, essentially Facebook and uh, Twitter, or Google or whatever. And if we have a lot more competition in that space, if we have fifteen hundred news uh, social media platforms, then it just becomes harder for news to propagate yeah. that quickly.
1: Well, so when I was when I was first involved in. The internet you know when we started realizing the internet was going to be big which was I was a little late I didn't realize that it was going to take over the whole world until 1995 and there were plenty of people I saw the internet I saw a waste server in 1993 but it actually took me two and a half years to realize how important it was and then I went to my investors and said we're not making any more CD-ROMs we are only doing internet-based technologies and they're like no but we like CD-ROMs this is a fact so Um, they were a little farther behind, you know? But then, like, three years later, they apologized to me. So, but the point is that um, what we thought was going to happen is, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, that the beauty of the Internet was by lowering the capital cost of reaching people, you no longer need a giant printing plant, you just need, like, an Apple word processing program, you know, that there would be so many more voices and so much more diversity of product offerings, you know, every every company would be able to au- auction its products off its own website, you know, every, what happened was not that at all. What happened was massive consolidation and the creation of one or two or maybe at most three winners in every sector, but usually one, right? That was surprising. That is surprising. Economists have different like, theories about why that is so right an obvious one possible explanation is the uh that it's all about uh having a tiny lead at the beginning becomes completely dominant later on so with network effects if facebook had a few more people and you're just going to join one network you'll join the one that has your most relatives on it and then other people see that you've joined that one so they're not going to join myspace because it's dying out so they join Facebook. right so it it, a little tiny lead turns into massive total dominance like with amazon their whole idea was we're going to provide incredibly great service and we don't care if we lose money forever because we're just going to undersell everybody and other people were like no 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 that can't work because this market is going to stabilize in a few months or years and they've only recently started making profit, right? Just very recently. And really, it's probably by accident. It's probably because the whole AWS business is so fabulously profitable. Probably not at all because of the underlying commerce business, right? So, but their insight was, if people get used to coming to us, and we sell more, then we can have lower prices, and then they'll come to us more, and they'll get used to it, and they'll become conditioned, and so on and so forth. And that, that tiny advantage now, however much money we need to lose, is worth it. So it turns out, we have a winner-take-all system. So it is wishful thinking, saying, oh, if we had more players, we wouldn't have fake news. It's just wishful thinking, because mm-hmm. everything about the economics of it drives us to one player in each sector. You know, it's, just, it's just overwhelmingly clear that that's true, although, although why is
0: debatable. Mm-hmm. So, earlier on, Going way back now. <laughs> you mentioned that you have some idea of how the government should go about regulating these problems. Do
1: you care to voice your opinion? Okay, so let's just talk about advertising. Just set aside active measures and hacking and actual criminal behavior in nation states. Just put that aside. And we'll just talk about marketing, like normal marketing. I think there need to be some clear rules about marketing. So let's just talk about marketing. You should not be allowed to market to young children at all. You shouldn't be allowed to keep data about children, you know, at all. Currently, the rules are not enforced. There are rules that say you can't keep data on children under 13, but there's no mechanism to keep children under 13 from using the apps and sites, and then their data are gathered. So millions of children's data is gathered illegally, but we don't enforce those laws. That needs to change there needs to be a, a sunset provision. So like when you turn 18, you have the opportunity to see your data and delete it. You know, Like now you're an adult, you just don't want that data following you the rest of your life. You know, you should have the because now you are able to consent as an adult. Similarly, there need to be rules against targeting particular vulnerable populations. Right now, you can create any demographic you want. So I can target housewives in North Carolina who make less than $25,000 a year, but I can also target um, people who have been at least once in a drug rehab program who are currently unemployed.
0: There is no law that
1: says I can't market those people, things that are bad for them, right? So that's wrong, it's wrong to allow demographic targeting of uniquely vulnerable populations, whatever that demographic is. Then there's a more subtle thing, which is the use of metadata to target people at uniquely vulnerable times. So for instance, I wanna target people who are about to get divorced. I wanna target people who just found out they have a terminal illness. I'm gonna sell them some crazy quack cure, you know? go to Mexico and eat apricot pits because this worked for someone. Uh, There are many, you can think of many, many ways in which individuals are vulnerable. Hey, your child just got arrested. I'm going to target people whose children just got arrested. You you see, uh, the the creativity of marketers is infinite, um, and we need to protect both Vulnerable classes and vulnerable times. Right, so both. Um, for instance, it should be illegal to target people because they have mental illness. The gray area is should it be legal to target people because they're suggestible? Because that was a lot how the political campaigning in 2016 worked. It's people who are have been shown to believe things that are obviously not true, were a core constituency for the um, Republican campaigns, uh, not just the Trump campaign. But that was actually a very clear strategy. So um, someone explained it to me as the Nigerian Nigerian Prince scam, which is, here's a great, this is very insightful. So the reason why the Nigerian Prince scam has a lot of typos in it even though English is the national language of Nigeria, and there are universities there and plenty of educated people, the reason why it comes with typos is because they want to weed out people who have natural skepticism. So they actually want it to be an extremely weak pitch so that the people who respond have already been pre-screened for vulnerability and suggestibility.
0: Yeah, so. And is it uh, possible to tell that with data? was more suggestible
1: sure yeah absolutely because you send people a piece of fake news and they like it and you say hey like this send this to your friends oh yeah pizzagate that sounds believable well see now i know you'll believe anything so you're vulnerable in lots of different ways Um, so yeah so that these are some of the rules that we need Mm -hmm. and the other thing that has to happen is we have to stop allowing um, content that, it, that is produced by anonymous corporate entities. So what we have now is if I have a shell corporation in Turks and Caicos, say, and it forms a shell corporation in the Seychelles, and it forms a shell corporation in Panama, that corporation, if it, is, if it owns a corporation registered in Delaware under Facebook's new rules, can buy political ads without any further investigation because it is a U.S. It is a, it is a U.S. person okay that's a problem it's a long tradition in Anglo countries U.S. and U.K. to allow anonymous corporate ownership we need to make an exception to that for uh, toxic content that's entering the, the, the ecosystem of the web I, I think that's the only way we're going to ever deal with these problems how do you verify that a company isn't collecting this data anyway? Like if, in the instance, you make a law saying you can't report any personal information about children. No, 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 no. Like what I'm saying is that it, you have to judge it by the targeting. So okay. if someone, if an ad comes in that's obviously aimed at young children, mm-hmm. then this is something the Federal Trade Commission could do now, but they just don't enforce these rules. But they could say... Were subpoenaing you because it appears that the only way you could have sent that ad is if you based your demographic targeting on data about young children like that right so yeah so what there needs to be is there needs to be a system of like kind of like how the Nielsen ratings had, you know had different televisions all over the country in all different demographic groups there need to be monitoring by Uh, regulatory agencies of what's popping up in the feed of young children, what's popping up in the feed of African-American housewives in Michigan. The the power of micro-targeting is that there's no shared debate about whether something is true or not. You can just show it to one person. And Facebook allows you to show an ad to one person if you have their email address. You can buy the ad to show it in one person. So I read a great article about a guy who's, who pranked his roommate by running Facebook ads that were written no. to mess with his roommate's mind. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I need some I, insight on that. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't mess right
1: that. that. I have to mess with my roommate's <laughs> mind. So yeah, so that's... that's so. Uh, I'm not proposing a comprehensive regulatory scheme. I don't know all the answers. I just think there are obvious... Um, there are obvious... Problems that need to be solved one way or another through some combination of self-regulation state and national regulation You know, and ideally the best way to solve these things would be by having um, Norms that were enforced internationally because the internet's everywhere, right? So um, Ideally, we'd have you know as we try to do with things like intellectual property rules or rules for banking fund transfers You know, there's all these international Standards. standards and we need we need rules around what isn't isn't permissible for
0: marketing well. yeah it's almost a shame we have to end this episode actually <laughs> this has been brilliant thank thank also much pleasure yeah, right. this was uh, fantastic good my pleasure hey guys just wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast this podcast was produced by the MEM finance club in conjunction with Sal Mascarenhos we want to give a special shout out to the MEM PDC Also, all rights are reserved, so please don't try anything funny. I will see you here at the next episode. Please remember, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs, (laughs) you know what happens.